This is an AI Group podcast. AI Group has prepared a series of papers that considers how best Australia can recover, rebuild and reposition for a stronger and better economy and society beyond this pandemic. These papers contain recommendations across many fundamental areas of public policy to help achieve these ambitions. In this podcast, we'll be discussing our climate, energy and environment policy paper. And with me is Tennant Reid, AI Group's Head of Environment and Energy Policy. Hi, Good Tennant. to be with you. Great, great. Okay, so we'll we'll talk for about 15 minutes and we'll go through, this is a big area, you could talk for an hour on each, each point, but we'll quickly go through the main points that we raise in this policy paper. And the first I want to deal with is around our goals around net zero emissions. But So Australia's agreed uh, nationally and through our international agreements to aim for a net zero emissions by 2050. So this is not sort of something out of AI group, it's about what we're agreeing with in the world. So what's behind that particular target? So uh, the net zero comes down basically to maths. Uh, to have uh, a, a chance at stabilising global temperatures at any particular level, the world needs to achieve net zero emissions at some point. And the best advice from the scientific community is that to, stay, to, to meet the temperature goals in the Paris Agreement that Australia signed up to and uh, nearly every other country in the world, uh, that uh, goal of net zero globally needs to be achieved by around 2050. To, to stay below one and a half degrees. Okay, but, so this has been agreed by the federal government and the opposition parties, this is the target. So the status of this target is a bit interesting. We've signed up, the government has signed up, both sides of politics support the Paris Agreement, and the Paris Agreement includes pretty complex diplomatic language, okay. which amounts to... Uh, agreeing to pursue net zero emissions. But the federal government hasn't adopted a detailed uh, statement of net zero as yet. Uh, all of the states and territories under governments of, uh, of all persuasions have uh, done so. Uh, and uh, many uh, businesses and uh, other organisations have adopted this goal. The federal government is... Uh, You'd probably say they're on their way to doing it, but they haven't completed that vision yet. But if we're going to get there, it's no good to just target you know, a, a number and be indifferent to how. What we uh, are arguing in this paper needs to happen is that we pursue a vision of being globally competitive and indeed more competitive than we are today in a net zero world. So that, that, goes, that goes to the question then of, uh, is it in our national interest to contribute to the success of that 2050? Whether or not the federal government signed up to it, it sounds like that's where we're going anyway. But yes. what's in it for Australian business? Well, so uh, for achieving the net zero itself, what is in it is both we, we do want the national benefits of reduced risk from climate impacts uh, that will come from achieving that. We do want to uh, avoid the uh, stigma and, and potentially uh, tariff barriers that uh, may emerge and in the Europe are emerging right now uh, against countries that are not seen to be pulling their weight. But 
We also want to seize the opportunities and the advantages in making this shift. We have had uh, an important energy advantage over the past few decades from uh, low-cost fossil fuels. That advantage has faded. We need to build a new one in cleaner energy. We have the potential to do that, but walking the walk is going to take a lot of effort, and that's what this paper addresses. Okay, In AR Group's policies, in these areas, we always talk about the difficulties for emissions-intensive trade-exposed sectors, and a lot of our yes. group members come into that area. So what should they be thinking about this goal? So there's something very important in the concept of net zero, which is net zero. So net zero doesn't mean that every industry or every facility in the country must be at zero emissions. It means the overall outcome nationwide and indeed worldwide should amount to net zero. There are sources of emissions and there are sources of sequestration or or taking carbon out of the atmosphere and locking it up uh, in plants, in products and in uh, the ground. Uh, and different industries have got different technical potential to be either low emissions, zero emissions, or negative emissions, and it's not going to be one size fits all. So some extremely important sectors uh, to to our economy and to just you know our, our quality of life, including steel making, cement making, uh, some uh, basic chemicals industries. They have. Uh, sources of uh, direct emissions that can't just be uh, replaced by, say, renewable energy. They've got chemical processes, physical processes uh, that need to be worked on. Now, there are technical options that are uh, are identified, and we talk about them a bit in the in the paper. For instance, using hydrogen in steel making instead of coking coal, uh, but those pathways are much the, the economic pathway for implementing them is a lot less clear today than, say, uh, the pathways for reducing electricity sector emissions. Okay. So one of the priorities in the paper is to make that uh, that transition pathway much more tangible for uh, these incredibly important parts of our economy. Which leads me to the question, do you think there's a strong enough government focus on reform and investment across energy in the clean economy? Um, or are we looking at a risk of... Uh, reverting to uncompetitively high energy costs if it's not managed well? So uh, government definitely at all levels definitely has energy and emissions on its radar, but sometimes the priorities are uh, not quite right and there are some pretty big gaps in policy. So we do think that there is a, a very real risk Uh, despite the uh, fall in wholesale spot prices for electricity and for gas in the last uh, year, we do think there's a very big risk that we revert to higher prices without uh, a a more strategic policy focus. Uh, And one of the areas where priorities have been um, getting out of whack is around electricity reliability, where uh, a political standard of uh, infinite reliability and reliability at any price has started to displace the balanced approach that is embodied, say, in the the standard uh, in the national electricity market for reliability, which doesn't ask for 100% uptime because that is very expensive to achieve. 
that we need to maintain that balance and keep a strong eye on affordability and competitive pricing if we're going to get the outcomes we want. And alternative energy sources and transition sources, as we're hearing a lot of looked at in these papers as well. So one of those is gas, which is often called a transition fuel now. It's, um, you know, what's Australia's strategy around gas and have we got some suggestions there? So uh, prices for uh, wholesale gas in eastern Australia have fallen to levels that we didn't think would come again in the face of both the pandemic and the uh, the massive uh, fall in global oil prices driven by uh, ructions between OPEC and Russia uh, and uh, a lot of turmoil in that market. That flows through to East Asian gas prices and East Asian gas prices shape Eastern Australian prices because of our huge gas export sector. Uh, so we think that there's both the likelihood that as oil prices normalise, gas prices go back up, and because the oil and gas sector has been cutting back on investment in the face of the fall in uh, in its markets, uh, there's a risk that later this decade supply falls short of demand as existing production of gas declines and projects for new supply are pushed back uh, by by the industry, as well as facing some regulatory and, and political barriers in some of Australia's states. So we're recommending a four-part strategy to minimise the cost of gas to energy users and minimise the risk that we see prices not just go back to international parity and high levels, but actually burst through that level and go even higher due to local scarcity. And that strategy is... Uh, to support new supply options where they make sense. That was and my next it... question. <laughs> Indeed. So, so what can we? What are the options to gas, and should the the government be facilitating them? You know, biogas, yeah. hydrogen, etc. So, we need to look at uh, new supply options for conventional gas. We need to look at alternative supply, biogas and hydrogen, which will be more important over the long term. We need to make a very big push on demand-side efficiency, electrification, fuel switching. It makes economic sense right now for some activities to electrify, not all of them, uh, but we could accelerate that with public support, whether that is uh, providing expertise, uh, favourable finance or uh, just funding to get this switch going. We also, though, need safeguards for the domestic market uh, to ensure that if the worst happens and we do face a shortfall uh, in supply, that it is not uh, energy users in Australia who are going to be first up against the wall. In terms of those those new uh, the energy options, indeed. <laughs> uh, so, in terms of the the new supply options, uh, there are um, conventional and unconventional gas plays that are uh, potential in New South Wales and Victoria. Most of our gas supply in the east now comes from Queensland, and that is likely to remain the case. The the new uh, resources being argued about are they all look substantially smaller than Queensland's. Uh, there's also the LNG import terminal options that are proposed uh, in Victoria and New South Wales. All of these can have a, a part to play. None of them 
looks capable of pushing prices below international levels uh, on average over the long term. So we, I, I'm a bit of a pessimistic Eeyore when it comes to uh, the future of gas prices. I don't think it looks good, but there are there are gradations of bad that are possible. Okay, just focusing on that one narrow bit there, the LNG imports to people listening, they might think, why on earth would we be importing gas? We've got a lot of it ourselves. Yep. Indeed. Uh, it is an idea that five years ago to uh, many people, if they thought of it all, would have looked mad. Now, there are many markets in which we do both import and export products. Wheat, wheat for example. Indeed. Uh, and it's all a matter of uh, what benefits do you get uh, in terms of uh, competitive pricing and flexibility of supply that may or may not stack up against the costs of transport to get that gas here. Uh, so given that we have uh, this risk of shortfall, a highly flexible uh, supply option that can import anything from, uh, you know, a few ships worth uh, of gas a year to uh, a uh, 100 or 200 uh, petajoules a year um, volume of imports, that flexibility is really valuable. And building the terminals is a matter of literally constructing a jetty and some pipe to shore to connect up to ships that are already built overseas and are, are looking for markets to service. So the capital risk is very low. The proponents of these projects think that they've got an excellent business case. And our argument is they should get the chance to find out how good their business case is. So we have supported uh, regulatory decisions in New South Wales and Victoria that would enable these uh, projects to, to get their chance to compete and see if they can sign up customers uh, among uh, Australian gas users, which it looks like they're having some success with. Okay, focusing on the pandemic itself, do you see energy environment option opportunities for business emerging from this pandemic? There are definitely opportunities for uh, for both business and for accelerating the economic recovery and a successful energy transition. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of focus right now in Australia's governments on how do we sustain individuals and businesses through the next six months uh, as the, the acute health crisis continues, particularly in Victoria, and the economic consequences of that uh, are, are most urgent. But whenever the health consequences abate, you know, we're going to be left with a garden variety uh, deep recession and indeed a, a global recession to work our way out of. We need to get uh, investment uh, and consumption back up. We need to get people back to work and businesses' order books uh, full. Uh, and we would you know, really love it if that activity generated long-term value and uh, not just a short-term sugar hit. So uh, energy uh, investment and climate investment is one of the opportunities to do quite a lot there. And there are a number of uh, of opportunities we talk about in the paper, but the biggest one probably is upgrading our built environment, uh, houses uh, and apartments, uh, public buildings, office buildings and uh, industrial facilities to be more energy efficient, 
have smarter energy management capabilities uh, and to be uh, safer and healthier places to uh, withstand the higher extreme temperatures that we are going to, we're already enduring, but that, that we're going to face more of under any scenario for uh, climate mitigation. So there's a there's a huge amount that can be done to improve performance across all of those buildings, and doing so will put uh, a lot of not just uh, tradies and constructors, but manufacturers of uh, building materials and efficient appliances, retailers, people across the economy to work and uh, with a with a stronger uh, order book. Uh, if we can support those investments. We think there's a strong role for governments at all levels to incentivise and facilitate and accelerate uh, that investment across the economy. Uh, it, it'll pay dividends now, but for many years to come. I guess on a business-by-business business basis as well, given the recession, they'll be looking for opportunities to save money and uh, yes. become more efficient and productive. That's right. Uh, so... If the future of uh, gas prices especially is uh, a return to uh, high prices, then uh, the, the thing that users can control is their own energy use. Uh, cutting your exposure to uh, energy prices through greater efficiency uh, and new ways of using energy uh, is a very good idea. And as new uh, markets open up in the electricity system for paying users to manage their energy use to take pressure off the electricity system when it's uh, under stress, uh, that is going to be an important part of the business case for making some of these changes too. Uh, a, a new uh, rule in the national electricity market is going to allow, in a couple of years' time, uh, energy users to uh, get paid the prevailing wholesale price of electricity for doing what's called demand response. And that electricity price uh, can go... Uh, up to uh, $14,000 a megawatt hour or more uh, when the, the system is under maximum pressure at the height of summer, for instance. So it, it, it could be a, a very attractive opportunity uh, to both help the, take uh, the, the system uh, into um, make it easier to manage, but cut bills and make money for individual energy users at the same time. Okay, we better wrap up uh, shortly just with a final question. One of the recommendations in this policy paper is the need to develop clear and practical transition pathways. And we mentioned transition, uh, of course, there with gas, but it needs to be across all sectors. And we're talking about ramping up platforms for clean economy innovation, et cetera. Just a final message on these transition pathways from you, Tim. Sure. So, um, AI Group is a, uh, a partner in an effort to fill exactly this gap for the, the so-called hard-to-abate uh, industrial sectors. Uh, the uh, Australian Industry Energy Transition Initiative uh, brings together steel businesses, aluminium businesses, chemicals businesses, uh, and uh, the LNG sector uh, to chart both the technical pathways and how they can make those investable. Uh, there's a role for uh, the federal government and the state governments to accelerate this too. The technology roadmap that the federal government has been working on is a great initiative. Uh, and the 
uh, finance and funding that uh, they can provide through the arena and CEFC are, are, are useful too. But we're also going to need policy frameworks that drive uh, and make investable mass uptake uh, of these new technologies. Some of them are going to become uh, cost competitive even without putting a value on emissions and renewable energy is certainly uh, in that category now for uh, many markets and many niches. But not everything is going to be uh, in that category. And for instance, carbon capture and storage, which is one of the very few technological options for addressing, for instance, uh, emissions from direct emissions from cement making, doing CCS will always cost more than not doing CCS. And uh, unless there is uh, a positive incentive or a negative incentive uh, to do so, and uh, a policy that can keep you competitive internationally while doing so, it's not going to happen. That remains a gap and it's one that uh, governments do need to make progress on as politically difficult as that has been over the last decade. So just finally and briefly, you mentioned a, a whole range of sectors there. How could those uh, businesses in those sectors that mightn't be involved yet get involved in some of those discussions and planning? So uh, engaging with the Federal government's tech roadmap is uh, a, a good place to go, uh, but also uh, that initiative that I mentioned, the uh, Australian Industry ETI, uh, is uh, taking more industry partners right now. So um, there are. Is there an email? Maybe someone can contact you by. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, if people uh, want to email tenant.read at aigroup.com.au, that's T E double N A N T. Dot rwed at aigroup.com.au. Uh, I'd be happy to connect them up with that initiative and uh, to give them any other advice uh, on their climate and energy policy questions. That sounds like a good place to sign off then. Uh, thanks a lot, Tenant Reed, who's our head at AI Group of Environment and Energy Policy. And this podcast will be available also on our COVID pages on our website at aigroup.com.au. Have a look at the other material that's there. I'm Tony Melville, Head of Corporate Affairs at AI Group, and that's all for now. Thanks to Tenant Reid. Good to be with and you. We'll see you next time.